Hey folks, Brian here. Just chiming in to let y'all know this is the second and last rerun we'll be doing before returning next week. And for this rerun, I chose episode number 28, going way back, uh, where we talked to Thomas Robertson, the guy behind Artemis Bridge Simulator. I thought of this podcast because it was such a surprise, because while we did talk about Artemis, uh, Thomas had worked on a lot of projects we loved and were fascinated by, because he worked at Interplay in the 90s, so that was amazing. Um, so this is one of our earlier podcasts as well. So, you know, we're a lot more green back then, but, uh, it's, it's still one of my favorites and, uh, we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Space Game Junkie podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian, and over there, as always, your, is your co-host, Jim. Captain. Klingons. <laughs> Starboard bow. <laughs> There's Klingons on the starboard bow, starboard bow. Oh, God. Um, and we have a guest this week. Our guest is Thomas Robertson. Hi, guys. Uh, hello. And Thomas is – you're the sole developer of Artemis uh, Starship Bridge Simulator. Am I correct? Pretty much that's correct. I don't do art. I had to buy the art from artists. Oh. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I've done every single little thing, but it was my idea. I did all the programming. I, you know, I maintain it. I, you know, it's, it's, it's all me. Well, I have to be honest. I've been wanting to get a group together to play this game for a while, but it's tough. (laughs) It's tough, especially I'm in Los Angeles and just getting a group of people together to do just about anything sometimes because it's just all sprawl here. It can be difficult. So, so first question right out of the gate, uh, because Brian's talking about trying to get people together. That sounds <laughs> like you must get people in a room. Uh, it, it, can you now play across the internet, or do you all have to be in the same room? You pretty much could always play across the internet, but my original vision was for everyone in the same room. But you know, people play it as the way they want to play it, and. Uh, I certainly don't want people to be disappointed. So, uh, as early as version 1.1 or 1.2, I did enough optimization of the network code to let people play over the internet, and plenty of people do all the time. Oh, okay, groovy. That's awesome. So, you, you said your vision for the game. How did that happen? Where did that get started? Take us back. Well, you want to go all the way back? I yeah. was I was 18. Okay. And me and my buddies all had Commodore 64s. <laughs> nice. And I had the original idea. Multiple computers networked together in a single room, each operating a bridge or, or each operating a workstation of a Starship bridge. Right. Um, that was, I had the idea way back then. I even did a little bit of work on it. I actually, you know, soldered up some wires and <laughs> hooked them into the connectors on the backs of the Commodore 64s and got a little bit of a low-level you know, message-passing driver working. But I think that's as far as I recall ever going with it at the time. Wow. So, But the idea just sort of stayed in my head for all these years, and I'm certainly not anywhere near 18 now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, my muse, I let my muse drag me around because, well, I can. And uh, a little over three years ago... Uh, she said, it's time. You've got all the tools and all the software and all the libraries. So no more excuses. Nice. That's awesome. And you say you've been working on it for about three years now? 
sounds about yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the initial release was September 2010. Yeah, that sounds about right. And if, from what I've seen, it's been pretty successful. I mean, a lot of people know about it. I know people who play it, which I'm very jealous of. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and then now it's on multiple platforms. You have it on the iPad. You have it on the Android, which is yeah, awesome. Right. Actually, I have a, I'm very good friends with uh, the boys at Max Gaming, which is a small developer house that I met when I came to Cleveland because they're here in Cleveland. Mm. And, uh, uh, and uh, Tim over there is an amazing uh, engineer, right. especially when it comes to quick and dirty ports. Uh, he he knows so many different systems, so many different platforms. Um, so I contracted them to do the iOS and Android ports, and uh, and I'm generally very happy with the results. They're all interoperable, and uh, and work just like each other. Um, so theoretically, as long as you have the same version number, uh, you can bring your iPads and your Android pads and play together with a group of PC owners in the same room. That's uh, really damned impressive. <laughs> so, well, except that I just re- released 2.0 for the PC. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, Tim is backlogged. So uh, I'm not, I haven't been as fast at upgrading the iOS and Android as the fans want. So you should make but, a phone app that's just the communicator, right? And then you could be an away <laughs> team. Like when you send somebody out for Taco Bell. Then he would actually have the communicator. <laughs> Send an away team down to the planet for supplies. <laughs> Makes sense to me. That's, that's awesome. And that'd be the, that'd be what the communicate. That's another thing the communication uh, uh, station would be for. Now I gotta ask: uh, Is there any uh, plan to bring this to the Mac at all? Well, um, you know, I have a very very long list of things. That I have, that I keep a, a long to-do list. Mm. In fact, I'm not sure I'll ever be done with it. It's so long, but it's culled from and sorted from all of the suggestions that fans have for me. Mm, okay. Um, and so, a lot of people, yeah, want the Mac version, and uh, I'm generally inclined to give it to them. Uh, but I don't really have a dev environment myself uh. for putting that together. Uh, so it's on the list, but it's not at the top of the list. Uh, As it, in the in the meantime, fans have had a lot of success with things like, uh, um, oh, there's some tools, Bootcamp or whatever. Well, Bootcamp is for basically running Windows, you know, in a, right. in a window but, but, or but something. But there's like a wrapper type thing you could use. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of neat little wrappers that, yeah. and and the fans have worked very hard to put those wrappers available on my forums. Oh, okay. And re- really help out the Mac users. Oh, okay. I gotta try that because my girlfriend she 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 hates PCs. She 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 uses mine every once in a while, and she's like, "What the hell is this?" She's she's totally a Mac person, and I would love to play this with her, but she has Mac, so. I have to I have to look into that. I apologize I didn't look into that sooner, but I will definitely look into that. And I I have a friend with an iPad, so I'll definitely see if we can uh, get her on board as well. See if we can get a few people over because I, I the I'll admit I've only played this game with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is unfortunately not the way to play. <laughs> right? No, it's not. I I wanted to test it out. I wanted to you know give it a um give it a give it a spin. Before uh, before coming on tonight, and so I just 
I just loaded it up on my PC and I loaded like two instances of it. One was the server and one was the thing. It ran great. Like, I got to say, you have that software. I'm using 2.0, thank you very much. Uh, well optimized because I also ran a client on this little HP netbook I have. It's, it's, it's an old, it's like a four year old netbook. It's not powerful at all. Ran great. I mean, it really ran well. I was shocked. I was really <laughs> shocked that I, I the only things I can usually get through on that are old like strategy games from GOG, you know, like Disciples <laughs> or Here's a Might and Magic or whatever. But no, that that 3D game ran great, and I was able to on my netbook, you know, do a couple of stations. And I, I like how you can select multiple stations for a player. That's that's cool. Yeah, uh, I, I really wanted to. I always knew that my clients needed to be very flexible. Because just like you're saying, you can't always dredge up six friends, right? Exactly. And uh, you know, and 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 the the game is winnable if you just play helm and weapons. And even though more the merrier, uh, just having two people play is even kind of fun. Right. Yeah. That's what I want to get. That's what I want to get trying because I was playing as like what was it helm weapons and science and I actually had a good time just fiddling back and forth <laughs> between the. It reminded me of a. Uh, Klingon, Klingon Academy, which had a similar kind of different stations. I don't know if you ever played that one, but it had different stations you could jump back and forth through. Well, actually, I, I, was, I was employed as a programmer at Interplay when they were working on Star Trek uh, Academy. You mean Starfleet? Uh, you mean Starfleet yes, Academy? Star, yes, yeah, Star oh, Trek wow. Starfleet Academy. Oh, wow. I, I was, they, they, those were the guys down the hall from me. Do oh, well, you have the secret of Vulcan Fury? Hidden under your mattress. No, no. Even though uh, I was, I was the lead programmer on that project. Wait, what? Yeah. All what? right. New okay, show. Wait, okay, wait. Let's wait. talk about that. Remember before the podcast, I tell you there might be tangents. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Secret of Vulcan Fury. Holy yeah, crap! I, was, I had no idea we were wading into that pool. Occasionally, um, I go fishing and I catch a big <laughs> one. And then. <laughs> Good job, man! Damn, you got a you got a huge one on that line. Now you worked at Interplay. That's awesome because I have very fond memories of Interplay. Loved them a lot. A lot, a lot of wonderful games came out of there. Uh, I was, and as you can tell, Jim was also very excited about the Secret of Vulcan Fury. Mm-hmm. What and then I was furious. Yeah. <laughs> Just what happened? Because uh, well, we never got a really great answer about what happened. So, well, here's the deal. And it's a bit of a long deal. Take your time, man. We got all night. <laughs> I, it was my experience. But Interplay at the time, and of course it led, it led to their, their dissolution, of course. Mm. It, well, okay. There's a fact in the video game industry that the blood, sweat, and tears that might go into the production of a video game has absolutely nothing to do with the game's fun or critical reception when it comes out. Mm. I mean, the truth is there are a lot of games that people really struggled with mightily, and they are perfectly smooth and wonderful to the player. And other games that were you know cranked out and very easy, and the team had a great time doing it, but to the player, it's a big, big buggy mess. You, know, you just can't tell how a game came to be. Um. And even though you know you're certainly not the only one who really enjoyed Fallout and uh, all these other great games from that interplay 
location at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is, is that I was never very impressed with Interplay as a company mm. during during the almost year that I was employed there. Um, in fact, which year was that? Uh, it'd be 1997. Mm, that that is, if I recall correctly, that is when Interplay started to decline a bit. If I recall, like they had a for years, they were just playing solid release after solid release after solid release, and then like the game you're talking about fell through. For example, <laughs> so, so well, what, but you know, so I was also down the hall. Despite best efforts of it, just wasn't turning out to be what looked like it was going to be a fun game. like Well, I, I hadn't really gotten there. Okay, sorry, please. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, um, <clears throat> basically at the beginning of 1997, uh, I was working at a place called Digital Domain in Hollywood, mm. uh, which was a s- digital special effects house. Um, they did the special effects for Titanic and oh, wow. Fifth Element and Apollo ah. 13. Oh wow! Good stuff and, all around. Uh, well, that's all good stuff, and they certainly, you know, I, I, I was Im- nothing but impressed with the caliber of work that their engineers and artists did on movies. But at the same time, of course, they were trying to expand, and they wanted an interactive division, so they hired a, everybody they could lay their hands on for way much money. And I got headhunted to work on Barbie fashion designer oh. uh, for them. Um, that was Which done. was well, that was, they were the producers of it. Now, oh. obviously, uh, obviously, Mattel uh, was the owners of Barbie. Sure, but it was kind of a business partnership, um, and so I was part of the Barbie fashion design team, and it was a real slice of hell. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for admitting that. <laughs> well, it just... wasn't just you know, Bar- actually, the Barbie project uh, was. It was bad, but but it was not Barbie Horse Adventures. So no, but also <laughs> di- Digital Domain had a whole lot of things going wrong with it. It was a real. It was probably the worst work environment I've ever worked at in the video game industry. Oh, but that has everything to do with them being a little startup who didn't know the first thing about making video games and uh, were in the business of grinding its employees into the dirt. Mm. So. Uh, I ripped the ripcord as fast as I could uh, when Interplay uh, hired me out of there. I was like, hell yeah! (laughs) Um, uh, And then when I got there and I started looking around and seeing what I could see and doing what I could do, um, I encountered yet another video game company that was management-heavy and... uh, confused about what it was doing and how it was doing it and what individual teams were all about and uh, generally a company that was really good at turning two-year projects into four-year projects mm. so uh, I got there and uh, you know my project was not really any different you know looking back on it it was obvious to me that we were set up to fail and that the, the people who were making decisions about the product, uh, were either too inexperienced to recognize that they were biting off way more than they could chew, uh, or too high up in the chain to really care and pay attention. Oh man! So um, you know, I you know, I, I I really liked my time working there. It was a first job as a lead programmer, and I took it very seriously. 
Um, and, uh, you know, actually the technology, the, the actual, you know, game, the, the engine was functional before I left. But it was going to be uh, kind of a throwback to the classic full motion video games uh, that had preceded it. And they were going to do all 3D animated scenes and characters. And even though they had a team of like 10 artists, that was nothing compared to what, you know, a two hour Pixar movie is, for instance. Mm. Um, so they just did not know how much that they were trying to do. And there were management shakeups here and there. Um, there were technical issues and staffing shakeups. And uh, I eventually got headhunted out of there to go work at Microprose. Uh. And, uh, and at the time, that sounded like a really good idea because the interplay thing just didn't seem like I was working with uh, you know a really good team with good direction so i left right so and after i left um you know i don't know much except that i know that eventually the product got canceled right well so so what can you tell us about what the vision of it was supposed to be because it, it we came out of like there's the star trek 25th anniversary game and then there is judgment rights and we were assuming because th- this that see the thing about Secret of Vulcan Fury is it's the last work that the entire original cast did before people started dying. So yeah. the, the thing that I wonder is where are those audio tapes? Because you, you know that's that's like the last time that they that they ever did anything. So um, hmm. yeah, no, I, I agree. And in fact, I remember um, there was an initial script. And they did actually get initial cast members into the studio. And my producer was was anecdotally telling me that um, DeForest Kelly was very tired and had to take an extra day to to read his lines. And because of that, his, uh, uh, his agent put up a stink and said that he should be paid for two days. And, you know, the management only wanted to pay him for one day and... Whatever. So I remember that. So I remember, you know, you know, the company going and getting audio. But you know, when it when it one of the things that I detested about Interplay was my general distaste for Hollywood as it's as an entity. Um, and Interplay was too full of people who wanted to be in Hollywood, but since they couldn't, right now they were marking their time in the video game industry, uh, which really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and uh, uh, but but because of that, we had whole staffs in that company whose job it was to go fet the, the stars and go get their audio and their mocap and stuff. So it, it had nothing to do with me. I was right. not in any way connected to or associated with the the actual actors and stars. Mm. But were you priv- were you privy to what the supposed plot of the story was supposed to be, or were you just like nuts and bolts and? They'll like stick that stuff in later. Well, I was definitely nuts and bolts, but I could. They had an initial script from the beginning, and I could tell you that uh, it was the, the the secret of Vulcan's Fury was supposed to be an orbital death beam that the the Vulcans had that they were keeping secret, and we had an animated 
full motion video segment that we showed around of the death beam opening up like a flower. Hmm. Um, and uh, but also uh, when I read the initial script, it read basically like the those earlier Star Trek uh, uh, titles you were talking about. It was you know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go down to the planet. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go explore this, um, and you know little dialogue options and things like that. Um, and uh, uh, they were at one point exploring the inside of the. Vulcan Fury death ray machine um, and there was something about a little girl who was hiding out and that's about what I remember oh cool yeah because I, I remember some of the initial art that they had done for that where they showed the space suits which were kind of a, a throwback to one of the episodes where they, they had these funky space suits on um, oh, yeah. And then there was sort of an orbital station that was in there. So I, I guess that that would probably be the deal. Um, probably so, yeah. But, yeah, that, that's pretty cool. So so you said you left there and you went to Microprose. Yeah, well, technically I left there and went to Simtex in Austin, Texas, which Ooh. at the time was a division of Microprose. Right. But, but I became a programmer, a team programmer on the um, – Guardians, Agents of Justice game. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I wanted that game so badly. <laughs> oh, my, oh, oh my god! I had no idea the gold mine we were going to be tapping into tonight. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, please go, go on. <laughs> well, that's that. That answers your question. I was there, and uh, <laughs> um, it was yet another project that got canceled out from under me. Um, it was, but but you know what? My experience in the industry tells me that this is just how things are. You look at any any game developer, any person who's done art or programming for video games, they will tell you that about two out of three of the games that they work on never see the light of day. Uh, almost always because of forces outside of their control. Hmm. Oh. So the Agents of Justice that was one of the one of those in a long string of uh, of superhero games that failed to launch, right? Yeah, that definitely you know you you could say that I was uh, a victim of the superhero curse before it was broken by games like um, oh Freedom Force. What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because wasn't Bullfrog working on another superhero game at the time, like the Incon- yeah. Indestructibles or something like that? Yeah, at the time there was generally an understood that um, that there had been too many superhero games that had not come out <laughs> or had been you know panned as awful. Well, it was Superhero League of Hoboken, and everybody said, "Well, nobody can top that," so they just canceled all their stuff. <laughs> that was <laughs> a pretty know? amazing game. <laughs> that was a lovely little uh, uh, oddball, little strange turn-based. Kind of almost Final Fantasy esque kind of game. That was such a good game. Yeah, I just I, lo- I remember all the build up that was going on around Champions. You know, and I, I forget who it was was trying to make Champions, and and then that was you know going to be the one. This, this is the one that's going to make it, and it didn't. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it, uh, fun, funny thing about that was a, a buddy of mine, also from Ohio. Um, actually got hired by Atari and did the UI stuff for Champions Online. 
So when well, they cool. when they finally actually got a you know <laughs> a champions game made, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was. Um, and then uh, his girlfriend worked at uh, the place that made City of Heroes. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like we have this conflict of interest in in the house. Like they're <laughs> they're working on rival superhero MMOs. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're going through your history, if you don't mind, let's continue till we get to Artemis because you've already. I've already. I mean, you could tell how just giddy I am at some of the stuff you've already worked on. Where did you go from there? Let's continue if you don't mind. Well, that studio got closed exactly a year after I started working there in late '97. Um, uh, by people then, still people still lament the loss of syntax. Oh yeah. Well, it is is utterly fascinating. I mean, like like any game industry insider, I have so many stories and so many personal. You know, this guy was bad and this guy was good, and you know, stupid things that might have happened. Well, just in generality, uh, though, like they they made Master of Orion, Master of Magic. Yes. Um, yes. Master of take my money, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, and and uh, how do you, how do you go from that to like somebody just pulls the lever and they fall through the floor into the shark tank? Uh, what happened? I can I could tell you exactly what happened. I mean, and, and it, the interesting thing is that while it was happening to me and while I was part of that, it was a little hard to see the forest for the trees. But in hindsight. Um, so what happened was is that when Simtex was its own entity and it was making Master of Orion and Master of Orion 2 and things like that, mm-hmm. um, it was a team of hardworking people, artists and programmers who were you know, buying into a shared vision like all small game companies do. You know, let's all get rich together making cool games. Uh, and it was run by uh, a couple of guys, Steve Barcia and Ken Bird. And when run by, what I mean is is that Steve Barcia and Ken Bird were a pair. Steve Barcia was the idea guy, the uh you know the the, the hand wavy, you know, vision guy who uh who also had the drive to start the company. And Ken Bird was the nuts and bolts grognard who could keep all the combat results tables in his head. Mm. Um, and they really needed each other. I mean, you could see how these two guys together would form one whole, you know, Voltron type thing that, <laughs> that could make a great game. Um, and when I got there, things were already significantly different because what happened was Steve Barcia had sold his company, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, to uh, to Microprose. And it's very customary in deals like that that, you know, they sell out, which means that, um, you know, X million dollars comes their way. And then they have a contract that says that as a principal of the company, they have to continue working there for something like two years or something. Um, so even though clearly those early products were part of a uh, – were a, uh, a team effort and, you know, uh, you know, I, I've personally worked with lots of people who worked on those early projects, and you know they were hardworking and they made great work, and they were they were you know came in early and left late. Um, Barcia wound up being the only one who got any money, hmm. uh, and he took it, and he, as far as I can tell, divorced his first wife, married a stripper, uh, <laughs> and lived the high life while 
continuing to employ all of his former friends at their original salary. Um, and, uh, you know, that right there was like, what the hell? Mm. Uh, but then as part of that, uh, Steve also broke up the team. He anointed himself the leader of everything and the genius and left Ken Bird as just another salaried employee. Mm. And with and since he basically had the all the ear of the parent company, he could do anything he wanted. And that kind of id and ego duality got broken. And suddenly it was all id. It was all Steve Barcia, who thought he was God's gift to game design. And so he changed his mind every week, destroying months of work from people oh and, uh, and driving um, morale straight into the toilet. Um, and I, I would talk to these people and talk to the team members and say, you know, I see the team. I see all the people who made Master of Orion and Master of Orion 2 and Master of Magic. How is it possible that they even made it? And Ken and other people would tell me, oh, well, we just, we just basically locked Steve Barcia out of the office for the last three months so we could actually get the product done and ship it. Um, and, of course, this time around when I was there, there was no locking him out of anything. Mm. So ultimately, um, you know, basically with the morale in the toilet and the directionless uh, uh, work being done on the product, uh, the parent company took it for a year and then just closed the studio and laid us all off. Oh. My God. Well, I mean, okay, so, I mean, uh, you, you may, it may sound distressing, and on, on one level it is, but... Mm. That kind of thing is not unusual in the video game industry. My long experience in the video game industry teaches me that, unfortunately, um, everybody who's worked in the video game industry has horror stories. Oh, my God. So, and, you know, I, I think it's a damn shame. There was so much work, so much artwork, so much 3D work, so much animated sprites vast arrays of all sorts of superheroes made for that game that basically went into a closet. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a crime. Yes, it is. Not only is the, the canceling of... Uh, the, the, the I mean, not only is the canceling of Guardians of Justice a crime, but the fact that a studio with such a lofty pedigree could just tumble like that that's that's just that's the real tragedy oh my god yeah and it was definitely in the middle of tumbling when i got there i oh man as excited as anybody to be working for the famous steve barcia right I mean, of course like oh, oh my god he's made all these great games that i love and adore i'm gonna learn so much from him mm. and what i mostly learned was how not to run a game studio oh my god Wow, I feel like my my little tiara is being ripped off, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this is how the word really works, Ruben. I'm scared <laughs> like, about our podcast now that he's been on it because everything he touches like turns to dust. <laughs> oh God, no, 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 no. Okay, but, um, so okay, 
please tell me it gets happier from here. Uh, <laughs> please yes, keep going. So, um, um, my wife, who is of course the greatest woman, um, let me be an indie game developer for a while after I lost my job. But then she decided in 2000, 2001 to go to law school. And so one of us needed a job. So I picked up a programming job at Interplay. Oh, wait, did I say Interplay? I meant Acclaim. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were still around back then. Yeah, and I was immediately put on the job doing uh, All-Star Baseball 2002, and I also did All-Star Baseball 2003. Okay. And that was was PlayStation 2 and the GameCube. Wow, all right. So that was a lot of fun. That was actually a really great team, and we got the job done on time and on budget. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the, you know, the all in all in all the greatest company in the world notice that after I left the company you know did eventually cease to be yeah exactly. uh, and I wasn't there of course I'd been gone so I didn't have to deal with it but a lot of my friends who were still working there uh, they closed basically by locking the doors and <laughs> it took months for anyone to actually be able to enter the building and get their personal effects oh my god <laughs> in and you know it was in bankruptcy proceedings and I mean literally months before anyone could even get in and uh, my friend Bruce had a uh, had a climbing ivy in his office uh, that he very carefully tended and it had managed to climb all over the place and it was hanging off the ceilings and things and of course it was dead when they went back for it oh. so but anyways that was uh, during the, my time at Acclaim, I was part of a really great team doing that all-star baseball project. Mm-hmm. We worked hard. Um, you know, everybody worked together. We had a lot of fun. Um, did, and, the ga- uh, did the games turn out well? I never played them, so I'm just curious. All-star baseball 2002 and 2003 uh, were well-received, but they were always in the shadow of the EA games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. So... Uh, after three years there, I got headhunted to be a game designer for the first time an actual, like, you know, not doing a job as a programmer anymore, but doing a game designer job mm. at a little company in Austin called Edge of Reality. Mm. Edge of Reality, um, well, I, I can't say that they did games that were, you know, real standouts. Uh, in fact, a lot of what Edge of Reality did was like movie tie-in games. Oh, okay. That kind of company that were well-positioned to crank out games on the various platforms in a timely fashion to coincide with the release of a movie. Sure. And uh, they were really well-run, and they're still around today doing great. Um, oh, yeah, are, they they like are. A, are they like a port house now? Or how, how does that work? I think they're, they're most well... They're an, <laughs> they're an engine house. They were started by three guys. Two of them were engineers from uh, Acclaim who decided we just want to run on our own company so that we can sit and make our own great, great game engine all day long. And that's what they did. When I was working there, that's basically all they did was they sat in their offices and built the game engine that the rest of the company used to make products. Hmm. Um, there was a third guy that joined them named Benu Phillip. He was a biz dev guy, 
and he was awesome. He was a fucking shark. And, you know, the thing about swimming with sharks is you're, it's a lot better if you're riding on your own shark. Um, and uh, I think a great deal of the success of that company financially uh, has to do with the fact that they had Benu Philip on board. He's still who, there, apparently. Yeah. Who, you know, he'd pull up in his Porsche or his SUV and he'd wine and dine all the guys who came in from uh, from the movie studios and, uh, you know, and he'd, uh, he'd, he'd do all the deals and, you know, um, put together all the uh, contracts and uh, and he was awesome. I mean, if I were, if I needed a biz dev guy, you know, I would always say, I want one just like Benu Phillip because he was a Sharpie. Um, and that com- the company prospers. I still have a friend named uh, um, uh, Emmanuel, uh, who is one of the engine coders at that company today. Hmm. Uh, so, but anyways, uh, I was hired at the time. They put me on the Sims for the PlayStation Two port. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see, I, I'm looking at the list of games. I'm seeing they've done a wide variety of stuff. And uh, so uh, I and I joined that port. I mean, I uh, uh, I went to Maxis and I got a one day seminar on how to program the Sims in the Edith scripting language that they had. Hmm. And, uh, uh, I was responsible for you know scripting up things like the mm, the treehouse and the port uh, the the tree swing and the sandbox and I think I. Did some of the monkey butler, so you know it's all this kind of collaborative work, and I just did a little piece of it. Um, but the particular guys I was working with at Maxis, uh, I didn't get along with them, and they didn't get along with me. Uh, so after about a year, I bailed from that company, and that is the last time that I have been employed by any game company. Hmm. Since then, I've been totally indie. Okay. Did you work on something before Artemis? Yeah, I worked on lots of things before Artemis. I've been making video games my entire life, and I can't stop. Uh, if you go to games.eochu.com, you'll see a uh, large sampling of games that I've written over the last decade uh, in various stages of completeness. Hmm. Oh, I see. Oh, Oh, I see. Here we go. Artemis is a subdomain of that site. Very nice. Okay, let's see. The, the big ones for me as an indie game developer are about 10 years ago, I wrote, just to see if I could, I wrote a fantasy MMO called Blade Mistress. Hmm. Um, and uh, then also around the same time, I made a kind of a cheap PC knockoff of of Pokemon called Battle Pets. Uh-huh. Wow. And, uh, also made a top shooter uh, that did fairly well for me. I forget the name of it. Oh, yeah. Gunmaven. Say again? Uh, top shooter named Gunmaven. Gunmaven. Okay. Maven, Raven, like the bird. Oh, sorry, oh, I see it. Yeah, okay, I see it. So, and these were these were games, that, you know, made me a little bit of cash on the side. 
Uh, but I haven't really paid for myself, so to speak, until Artemis came along. Right. Now, at one point, your wife tells you, you know, you have to do this. That's how Artemis finally got off the ground? Well, no, it was my muse that really demanded it. Um, Working on another game that I stopped work on called Planetary Governor. Okay. My wife was a big fan of that. She's like, Planetary Governor, you got to work on that. And it was kind of hard. I I made several prototypes and nothing was coming together. Uh, But she was skeptical when I took a right turn and said, I'll just do this multiplayer space game, dear. (laughs) But, uh, you know, she's come around since then. Oh, I, I can imagine. It's gotten pretty popular. Yeah, it's definitely the, best, the most popular and most profitable indie game I've ever made. Oh, that's wonderful. And and even at the price point, because you don't see a lot of people selling indie games for 40 bucks. I'll be honest. But to, to still hear that it's doing that well at that price point is, is very encouraging. Well, you know, um, before I ever sold it, I took my my beta prototype to a, to a local gaming convention. I just you know borrowed a few laptops, together mm. a bridge so that people could play and get give me feedback. Um, and especially the LARPers that really understood it and said, "Oh my gosh, this is something cool." Were very clear to me that they pay a whole lot of money. They were talking like you know it was so special. They wanted to. They were they 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 wouldn't be surprised if I. You know, charge a hundred dollars a station or something, and of course that's that's not video game software. But I did initially release at a sixty dollar price point, mm. um, and brought it down a few months later. Um, and uh, uh, but I had some sales at sixty. So, so have um, you have you been contacted by the people who are doing the Star Trek bridge reconstruction? Oh yes, uh, guys. Let my guy named uh, Houston I think it's a really interesting name but uh, yeah I've traded emails with him several times uh, definitely it's the case he has fans and I have fans and they say to each other oh my gosh we got two together uh, so he and I have talked about that and, and I, I think he's really come to the conclusion that I'm creating enough different product that's not actually branded as Star Trek that if he wants interactivity on his bridge, he's going to have to find it elsewhere. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I'm, he's certainly, I, I gave him a free copy. He's certainly welcome to, you know, look at it. But the last I heard, they'd, they'd make their own programmer to make their own Star Trek specific interactive experience. Oh, that's, that's funny. Oh, I, t- I actually forgot about that, uh, that bridge thing, Jim. <laughs> totally forgot about that. <laughs> I think it's going to be out here in California, isn't it? I'm not yeah, sure myself. I, I'm not sure what they were doing. I just saw a thing where they were in the process of doing it, but I wasn't sure how far along it was. But it's been long enough that I, I would think maybe they're they're ready to take some action with it. Right. I'm just wondering if it's if they're out here with it. I think they are, but I'm yeah. not sure. Uh so let's talk Artemis. We, I mean, that was that was a. Thank you for sharing all that. That was a very wonderfully unexpected trip. Uh, that I was, you know, totally, honestly unprepared for. But it was great. It's a nice surprise. But now let's talk about the real reason we brought you here. <laughs> Is Artemis? Now, 
Uh, I got to say, the technology behind Artemis is fairly impressive because this new version, you could have, what, six bridges? Eight bridges? Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm using some old networking code that was designed for my MMO. That So it theoretically, as long as you had the infrastructure, could support thousands of simultaneous connections. Uh, but, oh, my God. But, I mean, in reality, of course, you know, you don't have the equipment that could possibly do that. Right. Um, but, uh, but definitely, I have been in a place where we were able to run six simultaneous bridges. Oh, how was that? Oh, well, you know, it's actually pretty good. You know, you get one or, one or two machines dropping out or getting a little flaky, but all in all, it held up and it ran. Uh, I had previously heard of these uh, Canadian that managed to run six bridges simultaneously across the internet. But I was not actually, I did not actually see it happen. I just, people talked about it on my forums. Jeez. <laughs> you know, when, when I started with Artemis, my entire vision was was informed by Star Trek. The, 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 the lone bridge, you know, Kirk and his team. And I was especially unprepared for... Uh, people's demand for multi-bridge experiences and how they would they really would go out of their way to pull together 12 or 18 friends and 12 or 18 computers just so they could get that multi-bridge experience. So 2.0 added a new PvP mode and smoothed out some of the co-op mode and tried to in general you know give people what they wanted. Right, so the PvP mode is in the is new in two point Okay, and so I, I remind me of the options that are available to uh, to run a game. You have your solo mode, which is one ship. You have your PvP mode, which is ship versus ship. What else do you have? And then you have the co-op mode, which is multiple ships together protecting the sector. And then finally, you have the mission mode that that we've had in for uh, a year or so now. Uh, where uh, you can describe the mission and the sector and what happens in an XML script, mm. and uh, and theoretically, of course, anything can happen. Now, again, that's uh, that's the kind of thing where I a little, little bit missed the mark for my players um, because um, you know when I built the mission script system. What I was thinking was that the traditional or the, the standard mission, the standard game that I had people playing was a sector defense game where you did a lot of de- defeating the enemies before they destroyed your bases. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily very Star Trek. Star Trek didn't have a whole lot of ship-to-ship combat. There was a lot more story and beaming down to planets and and uh, taking ambassadors to peace conferences. Um, and so I built the original scripting system to reflect that, to give people that ability to take the ambassador to the peace conference and play a game that was more about puzzle and less about combat. Uh, but uh, since then, of course, again, I found that people want to play multi-bridge situations. They want to really expand what the scripting system can do. And they've been chafing with the fact that the script was kind of implicitly about one ship again. So I've done some changes, but I have more changes to do to make the scripting more general purpose for multi-ship games. But that certainly hasn't stopped people from scripting their own custom multi-ship games. 
Like, what are some of the uh, scenarios people have come up with? Well, um, the first thing that every new scripter does is make his own Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> just what happens. Um, but, of course, what that really is is, you know, dump you in a sector and just keep throwing enemies at you until you die. Um, uh, and then people start to, you know, there's a lot of missions on my on my forums about, you know, okay, here's a mysterious ship or uh, here's a mysterious distress call. These are all very, you know, these, these have the flavor that people are looking for. Um, uh, one of my uh, early fans is good friend Mike Substantly, and uh, he became kind of the de facto prime expert in the scripting language. And he produced a script called Havoc in the Hammock Sector, um, which had a lot of fun, interesting, wacky elements. There was a, a general invasion and uh, involving uh, ship stargates that you could destroy to stop the invasion from occurring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was a, the sector was full of nebula, so it you know clouded sensors and kept you from going fast. Uh, you had a friendly ship out there uh, uh, called the USS Warsaw or the TSN Warsaw. And uh, there's all this audio dialogue between you and the Warsaw and the space station, and uh, uh, it's a really good it's a really good script. In fact, it's so good that I went ahead and added it into the game. So it's one of the it's one of the scripts that come with the game. Oh wow! I have not tried. I, I'll have to try those, <laughs> Jim. We need to play this. <laughs> Uh, Jim, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting some weird sound here on my end. Are you hearing it too? Yeah, there's there's been some stuff like in the audio, but yeah. I okay, think we're I both just getting want- it. Yep. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I'm not actually hearing anything untoward. Well, it's coming from you, man. You're kind of going in and out from what I he- I'm hearing a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, it's like first word of a sentence kind of thing. Or if you okay. pause in between, but not a big deal. You're, yeah, you're not still a big legible. Deal. Yeah, I'm yeah, totally. So we'll just keep going. Uh, so there are there are what six stations, uh, right? Stations plus a captain. Plus the captain, and uh, now doesn't do any job. Like like Kirk, he just sits in the middle of the room, looks at the big screen, and tells everybody what to do. Right. And that screen, though, can be manipulated by some of the different crew people, it looked like. Right. Helm and weapons have controls for the main screen. Right. But I like how the manual says, oh, you just want to use the front view screen, you know, as a captain. Don't worry about these tactical things. <laughs> no one uses those. <laughs> well, you know, it's, that's what the manual says. But in reality, people play the way they want to play. So I provided a captain's map station. Uh, it's really just the science station without the ability to scan. Um, and uh, depending on what kind of captain you have or how you want to play, it's perfectly reasonable for the captain to be looking at the captain's map. Right. <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, let's get that. Let's talk about the stations real quick because they're all they're all pretty interesting. And then when when the game first came out, I was like, why would you want to be comms? Or science. Uh, 
So let's start with them because science, uh, it's not, from what I've remember of the game's development, science became a lot more important once it was required to scan stuff. Well, the earliest version of science actually was different in the sense that you had a sensor sweep arm. You could click on the screen and your sensors would look in a certain direction and then you would have a, a list uh, the, the little the little objects that you could see by your direct radar beam would would blink on the screen and then you would see a list on the left hand side sorted by distance of all of the objects that you your sweep arm was currently seeing so you'd basically you'd be clicking and holding the mouse dragging your sweep arm around the around the console screen looking for you know what's out there north of you or what's out there east of you and I initially thought that was, you know, that was a very cool thing. It it felt a little bit like uh, Spock looking into his little radar sensor box. Sure, okay, that makes sense. Um, but it was it was definitely one of the harder concepts for new players to get. Mm. New players sit down and go, okay, what do I do? Is a blank screen? I don't know. So uh, I I fairly quickly moved away from the sensor sweep arm to a more kind of standard tactic view because um, you know what I was already seeing was is that if I'm if I'm putting all of the really meaty information on the science station then science basically becomes the eyes of the ship and has to tell everybody else what the heck is going on out there where are the enemies and uh, so I felt and it, you know it, it became the case that even without the sensor sweep arm, the science officer was quite capable of doing that job. The person playing science could say, okay, the nearest enemy is at bearing 260. Right. But I also liked, at least in the manual, I didn't see this when I was playing. I didn't do it, but I should have. Where you could, like, do a deeper scan and find, like, vulnerabilities for different frequencies, it looked like, for your weapons? Yes. And, the, well, the frequency... Th- uh, for weapons has been in for a very long time actually oh, okay uh, new with 2.0 we've done even more deep information about the ship that the science officer sees oh okay there are special ship types like uh, broken down overpowered or underpowered um, that the science officer can scan for and uh, you know they can understand what that means until the captain instance, uh, oh, that Torgoth is overpowered. They've got extra strong shields. Um, there are also um, uh, specialty captains. Like if you have a... Normally, you can get a, a ship to surrender. It'll turn around and go home. But if you have a duplicitous enemy captain, they will repair their ship and then stop being surrendered. <laughs> nice. You scan and find the library computer, and the science officer sees that. So early on, it was really the case that I had five stations: I had the helm, the weapons, the science, the communications, and the engineering. Uh, and everyone understood that you had to drive the ship, and everyone understood that you had to fire the weapons. But you know, beyond that, it was all a big argument about which of the other three stations was most useless. <laughs> You know, I didn't want any of the stations to be useless. You know, if you look at Star Trek, everybody has a job and everybody's very important. Uh, so I 
always listen to the players, and if they said, well, comms really sucks, and it's the most useless station, then I would add something to comms to make it a better station that's more interesting to play. And then they would say, well, that's great, but now engineering sucks. And so I would go off and, you know, work on upgrading the engineering. And so actually, all three of those stations, science, communications, and engineering, look nothing like the 1.0 versions that I originally put out. Hmm. Right. Because, yeah, now I was reading at least the manual. I don't know if the manual is updated for 2.0, but, um, yeah, the manual now looks like to dock with a station, the communications officer has to get permission, for example, and to sync up with another ship and tell them to do something, the communications officer, you know, so on and so on. And engineering uh, manages power and tells um, damage control parties what to fix. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like it becomes a lot more useful <laughs> than uh, whatever it might have been before. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've you know I've, uh, that's you know basically how I've been growing the game, uh, and and I've always had to be very mindful of the fact that there's a certain number of my fans who want me to continue growing each station to make each station more and more complex with more and more things to do more and more buttons people are already saying you know all these stations need a secondary screen (laughs) Um, and you know on the one hand I'm not theoretically against giving people more things to do but on the other hand you know each new layer uh, more challenging for new players to understand what the hay's going on so whenever you're playing, can a can one station get crippled, and then you need like an engineer that fixes the science guy's station to put him back in business? Uh, no, and I'll tell you why. A lot of people have said, "Hey, let's do that. That might be interesting." And I have always said, "Unfortunately, look, I have been a video game designer for a long time now, and I can tell you that nothing's more, nothing is less fun than looking at a blank screen." and waiting on one of your friends to come help you not have a blank screen. Um, that <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things I have very clearly and, and, and always resisted doing in the game. I don't mind crippling the ship as a whole. I don't mind um, making the, the, you know, the player's life a little harder as a group. But uh, you know, I never want, and I, I don't think it's a good idea, for, for instance, the science officer or the engineering station to just stop. And the, those players just have to sit and twiddle their thumbs. Mm. Well, you know what you could do? You could have it so the, the, the station gets so damaged it simulates an explosion. And then that person, you know, like on Star Trek, oh, God, sparks fly. And then they fly across the room or they slump over the thing. Yeah, or, or if you could make their <laughs> computer actually explode. No, then, no. Then no, you not, would build... Well, no, you would build some realism and some stress because then there's there's actually a loss condition. <laughs> well, you know, I think you'd need a medical officer. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not actually planning on hurting anybody's computer, but um, <laughs> but yeah, the special effects on the bridge, the the smoke bombs and the lights and things like that, have always also been a real part of Star Trek. Uh, so from the beginning, well, not from the beginning, but, but for a very long time, I was exploring options to do custom lighting and smoke machines and those kind of extra goodies. And uh, about a year ago, maybe, I 
I was able to get a, a, a so-called DMX setup working. So aside from the regular game, which you just have, you can also get uh, uh, lighting uh, tool, just lights from like Guitar Center, the kind of DJ lights. Hmm. Plug them all in with a special little box you can buy online uh, to to your laptop or whatever computer is running the server. And then the server will contextually control those lights and smoke machines. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, so. People taking off and making their own lighting rigs that flash red for red alerts and <laughs> when enemies shoot you and, you know, this kind of thing. It so, comes with a basic script, but, you know, people, of course, can daisy chain on as many fancy lighting effects as they care to. So I knew some people that were a little overboard and were building a full-size F-16 cockpit in their house. Um, so, so I know that like the cockpit builder people are out there, right? And, and it's like you give them power tools and they're very dangerous. So um, <laughs> have, have you been sent any pictures of bridge builds that people have put together? Actually loads. Yeah. There's, in fact, I have an entire sub-forum on my website for so-called LBE, Location-Based Entertainment, and bridge and custom bridge building. Oh, sweet. You'll have to send Brian a link to that. Yeah. I'm actually looking at it right now. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and people have so many creative solutions. Um, there's a, There was a guy a long time ago who did a 3D virtual design of an Artemis bridge in a trailer. And uh, he never got it kickstarted, unfortunately. But then uh, some guys, I think, in Atlanta um, uh, were bequeathed an old trailer from their, uh, from their grandfather or something. And so they basically put an Artemis bridge inside it, uh, and they take it to shows around there. Um, there's a, uh, a guy in California near you guys um, who uh, works with the Star Trek Loma Prieta crew. Um, and does a website called uh, Tournament of Crews. And, uh, and he has custom rigs with touchscreens that he takes from show to show. Oh, nice. I think I'm actually looking at that. I'm a, I think I'm actually a touchscreen consoles. Yeah, I think I'm actually... Let me send you a link, Jim. Yeah. But, uh, and, then, and, and there are several others. And there's also, I, I think there was a Midwest, no, a, a Western... Um, I think Phoenix, uh, but I should go back and look. Um, they did a convention, and I don't know, they just had the truck and all the wood and stuff, so they built a god-awful big bridge with a, a you know a captain's chair on a giant riser and uh, 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 LED strips everywhere, so the whole room was bathed in greens and blues. Um so, you know, the, the funny thing is, when I first brought Artemis out, I said, there's got to be somebody who has a Star Trek bridge in their basement or their, their, their garage, and they're just waiting for my software. <laughs> and there were. I never got contacted by any of those people. I never got contacted by somebody who already had a bridge. But as soon as I made my game, there were so many people who said, I need to build a bridge. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at some of these. Uh, I'm looking at some of these pictures in your forum, and this is did you ever impressive stuff? Did you see the guy in England that's building a Star Trek themed house? 
it's basically like the, he's redoing the entire house like the the next generation enterprise i think i may have seen something you know. yeah cuz it cuz it was just you know you saying about uh well i know there's somebody out there that's got a bridge in their basement and it's like yeah there there's this one guy that's got a whole <laughs> house you know um yeah it, it's the same guy i read about him he like his wife left him and so he fell into a funk and got out of it by basically building what he wanted to do, build all his life uh, see, I was wondering which happened first, the bridge or the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to have a very special wife. <laughs> a very patient, very patient, understanding wife, I would think. To, uh, and a lot of money and a lot of time. Because yeah. uh, I'll tell you, if I win the lottery and we built a house, it, it would probably have a bridge in the basement. Yeah. So oh. Star Trek, Star Trek Ohio Trivia. Um, down the road about <laughs> an hour from you in Akron, right? So a buddy of mine that used to live there uh, was Patrick Lichty. And Pat actually had the shuttlecraft Galileo. Um, I don't know where they got it, like an what? auction or something. Yeah, he had the Galileo like way back when. The and original series Galileo. The original series Galileo was in a hangar at the Akron Canton Airport for what? quite some time. And they were trying to restore it, but that was kind of like spinning its wheels. So it ended up getting sold off to another collector. Um, and if you've have you ever seen um, that movie, uh, The Yes Men Save the World? No. Okay. Uh, it, it was like a, a mockumentary thing where these guys like pull practical jokes on corporate America and things, right? So the guy. I'm watching this thing, and and it's been like years since I've seen Pat, like 20 years. And I'm watching this movie, and then they're, they're in this guy's house, and they're like, oh, and it's Pat Lichty who, who did the design for the suit. And I'm like, holy crap, that's the <laughs> – yeah. it's like that's where he is now. So he's like some college professor out in Phoenix or something now. But, but anyway, um, I saw a thing on YouTube where they were, again, working on the Galileo. And uh, they've, they've basically like stripped it down, and they had the metal frame. And they were like welding that back together, and and then they were. Um, I'll have to find the link and put it in the show notes. It was really awesome to see this thing, like you know, after how many umpteen years, um, and and they're finally getting it back to where uh, I think they're going to be able to tour with it now. Awesome! So, yeah, it's oh, amazing. But there's a sim- there's but you need a to put an Artemis sim in the Galileo, and then it'll be complete. <laughs> but that's for a starship, not a shuttlecraft. They're completely different things. Well, you should be able to fly a shuttle out then. Yeah, <laughs> on an yeah, iPad. How awesome would that be if you could? Because I did see in the manual there are fighters. Uh, yeah. So, is that possible to fly a fighter in this game? Yeah, cur- currently, there are only enemies. On- Sorry, there are only fighters for the enemies. <sighs> well, you're certainly not the only one who has wanted to fly a shuttle, wanted to fly a fighter, and uh, that is also on the list. Awesome. Now, I wanted to ask you about, because I saw something while I was play, playing around with it, but I didn't do too much with it, the uh, GM mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you do with that? Like, what are the options you have available if you enable the GM mode? Well, the GM mode is kind of a specialized mission scripting mode. There is a separate computer console, which is the GM console. Mm, okay. With it. You have kind of a science officer scan, but you can see everything. Everything's already scanned, and you know what everything is. Mm. That station allows you to press keys on the keyboard, 
and those keys get sent up to the server and processed by the script. So essentially, in, from a certain point of view, if, if, if you followed it to its logical conclusion and learned the scripting language and everything, then you know the GM station can basically trigger anything. It can do anything. But uh, what I have is a specific mission script for GMs that comes with the game. It's called Three Bases. And that's all it is. It basically has three bases in the game, and it allows you to place your asteroids and your minefields and your um, nebulas anywhere you want, all by pressing keys on the keyboard of the GM screen. And, of course, it allows you to create enemies anywhere you want. So you can say, oh, I'm going to put some enemies. I'm going to put an attack force over here, sprinkle them in, that kind of thing. And it allows you to do things like pick up and remove and, and... shift things around to however you like them so uh it's a it's a fairly good script for just getting up and running with a gm mode and saying you know oh i'm the karelian commander surrender you people and you know actually say that into you know a microphone or or even be in the same room with your players (laughs) so Certainly, many people also asked for that mode. They asked for, you know, you know, I want to. I don't want to write a scripted mission that people then play. I want to actually be an, a hands-on game master, with power over the whole world. Oh, that's awesome! So I got to ask um, about the mobile versions. I don't have an iPad. I have like a. The only Android thing I have is like an old Evo. And apparently, according to the Google Play Store, I can run this on my little Evo. Really? <laughs> any any version of OpenGL 2.2 or higher, and uh, um, I think you need a certain amount of RAM, like 256 meg of RAM or something. Mm. So it doesn't actually take that much. I'm surprised. My, my wife has a series has a, has a, a first edition Kindle Fire that runs it just fine. <laughs> wow. So, you know, Artemis was never really about producing the most incredible graphics and doing the most, you know, system-challenging coding. Right, of course. Again, trying to capture that feeling of being Kirk and Spock and Uhura. Um, you know, right. in fact, Initially, I was like, for just a brief second when I started working on it, I toyed with the idea of not making 3D. Uh, but my long experience as a game developer tells me that if you don't have 3D, people will always say, when are you going to put in the 3D? <laughs> if you do have 3D, they'll say, great, and then they'll turn it off and never look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I got to say the 3D is pretty good, but it's just pretty impressive how well optimized this game is. Well, thank you. you it's know. written in C++ originally on top of DirectX 9. Um, so I didn't use any engine other than the engine I already made for myself. How long did it take you to put all of it together, including buying the art and everything? Well, you know, I was... I. Remember, of course, I had a lot of technology lying around. I had the network layer. I had the 3D spaceships. Right, right, okay. Uh, I didn't really technically start from scratch when I worked on it. But 1.0 took about a summer to make. Oh, that's it? Yeah, well, I've been making games for a long time. 
<laughs> right, right. But you know, you, I, we talk to a lot of indie developers on this uh, on this thing, and they talk about you know, I worked on this game for three years. I've worked on this game for five years. That's what we're you know more used to hearing, <laughs> not like a summer. <laughs> it's like wow. <laughs> There's there's definitely the the drive and the ambition to make a video game, uh, and all the indie game developers that uh, that I'm sure you've talked to have at least as much, if not more, uh, than I do. Uh, but then there's also you know skill and experience, and uh, I'm very impressed with these game developers who have very little skill and experience, and they they. They don't even have any idea how to do 3D, and they, uh, you know, they they barely know what a bitmap is. But damned if they're not going to make the greatest game. You know, I, you know, I, I almost, I, I, I wish I still felt some of the kind of new, fresh wonder, mystery, passion that I'm certain they're still feeling. Hmm. What are you feeling now in, in its place then? Well, you know, I, uh, in the sense that what drives me forward, I still have a muse. I still have, uh, you know, oh boy, I'd really like to make that. Mm. Uh, but uh, I'm also, at this point, I consider myself a cynical old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> at the beginning part of your story, I can see why. Oh my God. <laughs> you went through some crazy shakeups. In, well, in the late nineties, oh my god! Pulled a gun on me or anything like that? It's well, just... yeah, but you you watched you watched the uh, the fall of some really you know well loved uh, houses. That's true. You know, that can't have been easy. No matter how close you were to it, that can't have been easy. Yeah, but you know, I had enough friends in the industry by that time. Um, in different places that even as I was walking out the door, I could celebrate my friends in other places. I have this, I have this great story. Um, uh, a, a good old friend named Mike Steele uh, and I were still in, in the industry, not working in the same place. But as it turns out, uh, when uh, a few days before uh, they closed the studio at uh, Simtex, uh, I was working on a uh, kind of a sped up variant drop frames on the animations and try to make the whole game flow a little faster just as a test mm-hmm. and onto a CD we did weekly burns and things like that but I burned it onto a CD and I wrote just Tom's test on the front um, and then when they all that stuff went into a box and got shipped back to corporate <laughs> so well so corporate um, was you know microprose in in uh, California um and uh, they actually didn't survive much longer. No. no. Sold to Hasbro. And at the time, my friend Mike was working and had just started working as a team lead or kind of a manager at Hasbro. So um, as he tells it, um, he sat around with his team of programmers and uh, a box came into the office, and they started tearing it open and saying, "Hey, look at this! Is all the work that those guys on on uh, on Guardians Agents of Justice did back on that, you know, whatever that was?" And they were digging through the box of discs and things like that. And one of them held up a disc that said Tom's test on it, and and he said, "Yeah, good luck ever finding this guy." <laughs> <laughs> 
So my friend Mike just walks over to his phone and goes, do, 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 do. And I pick up the phone and say, hello, this is Tom. <laughs> and all of the programmers around Mike went, God, you know everyone in the video game industry. <laughs> Mike Steele, that name sounds familiar to me. Yeah, he was, uh, I, I worked with him a little bit um, early in my career. And he became a really good friend. We worked together on the old Harpoon, Harpoon 2 naval simulators uh, back when we were both working at 360 Pacific. Oh, wow. Okay. And then uh, uh, I followed him to California to my initial California job, which was a company called Western Technology slash Adrenaline Entertainment. Mm. Wow. So you've been doing this quite a long time. Yeah, I'd say so. What? My, my what? very first industry job was 1992. Oh, damn. <laughs> I was just graduating high school. Oh, my God. Not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Oh, jeez. I got to say that the 90s had amazing games. It was like a real amazing time for space sims, too. Space games. And XCOM came out. Come on. Well, yeah. that Was, was that 92 or 93? Uh, doesn't matter. It was still amazing. <laughs> the same ninety three, ninety four. That was when Doom came out. Oh yeah, God, so much stuff came out in ninety three, ninety four. Doom, XCOM. Uh, didn't Falcon three point come out around then? Yeah, actually, it was it was ninety four. Oh my God, <laughs> damn! And then you had X Wing. And TIE Fighter. <laughs> Those were later, 95, 96. Oh, my God. Such good times. So what were, like, some of the big space games you played back in the day? Oh, um, <clears throat> I'm a fan of the space word ho at the time. Oh, yes. I've only played the 4.0 version of that, but... I really enjoyed, uh, and I was I was a big fan of Master of Orion 1 and 2. Mm. I, those were really my first... Well, I can't say my first 4X games, but my first 4X space games. Because, uh, of course, I'd been playing... Everybody had been playing Civilization way before then. Right. Um, uh, um, I was... Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I think I came a little bit later, at the very end of the 90s, um, they were doing the uh, Command and Conquer stuff, right? And uh, we're starting to talk about you know this this cool shot called Blizzard that was doing you know uh, Warcraft three, which was a giant hit for the time, and then Starcraft came out, right? Damn! So you have seen quite a bit um, well let me ask you you've seen quite a bit you've gone through quite a bit how do you feel about this like resur- this slight resurgence going on in space gaming now I mean when, when you first released um, Artemis in 2010 there really wasn't much else uh, in terms of space gaming around and now there's actually kind of a competitor for you called Quintet I don't know if you've seen that but, uh, yeah, initially the Quintet contacted me and told me that I was an inspiration. 
Aww. He hoped I wouldn't mind him, you know, inspired by my game. So, of course, I was terribly flattered. Well, that's really sweet to hear. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how that went down. <laughs> I wasn't sure if he con- they contacted you or not. Um, but that you game's doing. Fa- I'm sorry. Uh, later, of course, I had fans telling me, "Oh, have you seen this quintet guy? They're stealing your idea." And I <laughs> tell my fans, "Look, ideas are not to be stolen, but to be shared." Nice. And also, I think you know, I think quintet has a little ways to go, but I think he is also you know trying very much to put his own stamp on it and as a result you know he's not he's not in any way trying to steal my sales he's what he has created is a different experience yeah yeah totally it definitely like i've played it a little bit like because you can play it through a browser and i've played it a little bit and yeah it definitely feels a bit uh maybe less detailed a little more actiony than uh not not that artemis is an actiony but you know what i mean uh a little maybe less simmy and more And I, you know, again, you look at Star Trek versus Star Wars. You know, Star Trek is always a little more, yeah, it's true, thoughtful and a little bit less, you know, fantasy. fantasy. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I, have you been paying attention to like all these indie space games that have been coming out, or at least been in development in the past year or two? It's incredible. The endless space. Uh, which is on Steam now, and it's a it's a space 4x game. That's pretty fun. Oh. oh, God. Okay. Yep, that's it. We're ganging up on you. It is, no, in fact, the greatest... <clears throat> oh. Stop it. Okay. Stop. I don't... Uh, this okay. comes up every maybe third episode, right? <laughs> Where somebody will drop the endless space bomb and... <sighs> then, yeah. Well, okay. Brian's not a fan. I'm not. <laughs> about, um, uh, not I guess it's called Space Alert. The uh, the iOS multiplayer game. Oh, is that the one um, where you have like a a console and you have to yell at the other people? It's actually a team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not played that. It just came out on Android and will not work on my phone, which I'm very upset about. But I've heard that's a blast. Yeah, most people, in fact, they used it at the last Penny Arcade as the last stage of the Omegathon. What's the Omegathon? They at the at the Penny uh, at the the, the uh, Penny Arcade uh, Expos. Right. They have they have gaming contests where they take sixty four people and winnow it down in single elimination single elimination competition, and they each each rank of the competition has a completely different game. Oh, okay. So, but so at any rate, I I, I actually met and talked with. Uh, the developer of Space Team when I was at Penny Arc- uh, when I was at PAX East this year. Okay. So he seems like a nice guy. Well, I I know I know people who've played that game and they can't stop raving about it. We know it's really the best way to play it is to play it with people that don't know that they're playing it, <laughs> and just kind of like run up to people as a group and just start yelling at them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, I guess on that note, we should probably start wrapping this up because we've been at this for almost an hour and a half. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Thomas, again, I had no idea the the, the gold mine that we were bringing on. I have to thank you so much. Um, Let me say, you need to put a bio on your site and tell people about all this experience you have. There's, There's no bio on there. 
certainly have a bio on my blog, which is. Uh, but you haven't updated that in a while. I was yeah, looking. Right. I, I work. Up- I work in SEO. I, I I have to pay attention to this stuff, and that hasn't been updated since 2012, sir. Guess mm-hmm. you got me. <laughs> got to uh, more often. You need a bio. I mean, people. I mean, if people, if more people knew, I didn't even know about this stuff, and I'm supposed to be this space game guy. I didn't even know about this. So. If people knew about this, they'd probably be more engaged and more like, ooh, that guy made that. Ooh, sorry, I get a little – it's my kind of work face going on there. But, uh, but wow, I, I feel like I've been talking to a luminary for like the last half hour and a half. Seriously. This has been very surprising and very enlightening and very engaging and very amazing. So – I want to thank you for coming on and 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 not only telling us all this great information, being so can, but but also being so candid about it. Well, you know, one of the great things about not being in the video game industry anymore is that uh, you don't necessarily have to avoid burning bridges. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like some of those bridges were just already burned years ago, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, talking a little bit about Artemis, I guess. But <laughs> oh my god, but that's so much other amazing stuff. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Jim. As always, thank you for being such an awesome co-host, folks. Thank you for listening. As always, uh, we look forward to your comments, your subscriptions, all that fun stuff. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this really impressive podcast. Uh, so I'm, I'm still, I'm kind of in awe right now. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to cut it here. Have a good night, everyone. Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing. Folks, me again, just chiming in to say this is the last rerun, and we will be returning to normal next week, uh, the week of August 21st. We'll have a new game of the week, a new podcast, all that stuff. So please tune in, and uh, thank you for uh, hanging out during this break. It's been really needed, and uh, can't wait to talk to you guys again next week. Bye.